All right, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris. I'm uh, one of the ministers uh, here uh, at GPC as well. Um, it's wonderful to have uh, so many guests with us this morning. Um, I just want to also add uh, to James's thank you for last week. What a, an absolute success it was um, having the kindy serve, uh, the service with the kindy here. Um, this place was packed. It was chaos. Well done to Becky for I don't know how she preached over and amongst all of everything that went on. Um, and uh, Carol's at the church was also just a fantastic uh, time of joy, of singing, um, and uh, just um, embodying the joy that uh, knowing Jesus brings to us. So um, thank you to everyone. Uh, I also want to add, um, I've got a couple of things I'm going to say here, so um, sort of waggling on the tea before I drive down the fairway. Um, uh, kids' church as well. Um, as I was thinking about next week and, and looking to... Um, our theme of an invitation accepted, um, the more we invest in um, our children and the more we um, invest into their formation as children of God, people of God, um, the, more, um, the more likely it is that they're going to grow up and become followers of Jesus and to know him and to live out his kingdom story um, in their lives. And so can I just really encourage you, if you felt... Um, even just an inkling of a prompting to get on board with kids' ministry. Just jump on board with that. It is such a privilege. It's such a special thing to be a part of, forming the next generation of young people um, who are coming up um, to be leaders, uh, not only in this place, but also in our communities and, and in this nation as well. So a real opportunity there, and um, I'll just add to, to that as, as well. Um, and Bill, um, uh, so great to have, have you with us, um, and um, a real blessing to hear what is going on at to, uh, Te Waipuna Pūwai. Um, if, if you want to support uh, Te Waipuna Pūwai in, in any other way, I'm sure, just, just talk to Bill. Um, he'll be happy to um, fill you in on, on what you can get involved in, how you can give, or um, what you can do to really... Um, yeah, to really encourage and help uh, these, uh, sorry, to help this, um, I say ministry. In church, we always say ministry. Um, I, I don't quite know. Organization, that's the best way to put it, I think. Organization. Um, to really be effective in, in supporting those in need in our community. All right, here we go. Well, we are looking at our theme of Advent. Oh, no, we're not. Our Advent theme uh, is Invitation. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at that broadly. Last week, we looked at an invitation to celebration. Um, and next week, we're looking at an invitation accepted. This week, we're looking at an invitation rejected. Uh, so looking at the, um, uh, the Christmas story and how in there, there is an invitation from God um, that was rejected. Um, and uh, we always get invitations from God. Um, and we want to be a church community who really accept the invitations that God has for us. Um, we want to be a vibrant family of believers um, who are inspired by God to get out there and transform our communities through the invitations that God's giving to us day by day, week by week. We passionately believe that Jesus has called us to that here in Glendowie. Uh, and we really want to get on board with that, to connect with others, to connect with God, to invite people to come to GPC and um, let them hear that invitation that God has for them. And of course, to be transformed as believers and to transform the community in turn as well. Uh, isn't that an amazing vision uh, to be a part of? Isn't that an amazing invitation to uh, accept? Uh, and so um, I'm going to look at... Um, 
uh, that invitation rejected. And the person I'm going to be picking on today in the Christmas story is King Herod, right? Um, and as we look at King Herod, um, he's known as Herod the Great. I think he could have been even greater. Uh, Herod the Greater could be his, his name. Um, but he didn't accept the invitation. And as we look at his story, as we look at the events surrounding his life, what we see is um, an opportunity for us to accept the invitations that God has for us, despite what's working against us, despite the things in our lives that might hold us back from accepting those invitations. So um, before we get uh, stuck into the word of the Lord, let's pray to the Lord of the word. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you do invite us to know you, um, to respond to the invitations that you give us day by day. And so, Lord, as we do uh, look at this story, uh, would you uh, inspire us? Would you humble us that we might come to you with open hearts and open minds? And, Lord, that we would be changed and transformed for the glory of your name. Amen. I'm just going to um, do a, a little bit of a, an extra third reading. Um, here, and uh, it's one that you probably know, uh, particularly this time of the year, um, the visit of the Magi. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. This is Matthew chapter 2, by the way. Uh, Jesus was born, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will, be, who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where this child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All right. Here we go. History is full of missed opportunities, isn't it? And um, with the rise of the information age and technology, um, most of which I barely understand, um, the stories of missed business opportunities are just ever more prevalent, aren't they? People who could have invested in companies with a mere $10,000 have missed the opportunity of becoming billionaires. One person uh, who perhaps regrets a decision like that is a man who goes by the... Well, it doesn't go by the name. His name is um, Ronald Wayne. Some of you may have heard of him. Anyone heard of Ronald Wayne? Well, in a garage in 1976, a bunch of guys got together and started a computer company that would change the world. And no doubt, no doubt everyone has heard of the two Steves involved in this, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. However, there was a third person who founded Apple, 
He wrote the first partnership agreement. He wrote a manual for the Apple One and even drew the first Apple logo. That man was Ronald Wayne. And the reason that most of us haven't heard of Ronald Wayne is that less than two weeks after founding Apple and receiving a 10% stake in the company, he sold his stock for $800. He apparently got another $1,500 later to forfeit any claims he might have against Apple going forward. So $2,300 in total. It is reported today that his stock would be worth more than $55 billion. Remember that billion is a, thou- uh, a, thousand th- a thousand millions. So 55,000 millions. Like, pff, like, how much would you be crying? Like, what a lost opportunity to become, a- an invitation to become a billionaire slipping through your fingers. Although, as the saying goes, hindsight is 2020 vision, right? If only he'd known. If only he had known. And in our story, today in that story of the wise men and King Herod. King Herod stands at a crossroads. There is an invitation for him to help the Magi, to believe in what God is doing, to act on it, and to become a part of that story. And as I said, perhaps even become greater than he was known for. But with the text of Matthew 2 before us, he can't even blame, really, I don't think, you know, I didn't know, hindsight 2020 vision and all of that, because he knew what was going on. There was overwhelming evidence that what was happening before him was more than just the ordinary, that there was to be born not just a random baby, that there was nothing insignificant about what was going on. There was everything significant, regardless of what he believed. God's plans were literally written in the stars, right? Magi, wise men, came from a foreign land far off in the east. They were wise, obviously, well-respected. They were wealthy foreigners, and they were serious about their journey because they'd brought significant gifts of great value. But not only this, the birth was referenced in Israel's scriptures. The exact city of the birth was known, Herod's own religious leaders knew what to, where he was, what was going on. They knew it was Bethlehem. And so we can see that the evidence that something significant go, was, that was going on was overwhelmingly huge for King Herod. I said a couple of weeks ago that when an invitation is given, it is given with the intention and purpose that you will be better off for having accepted that invitation, that it is future-oriented, And it invites you into something new. And that's what was happening with Herod. He was being invited into something new. Yet he still rejected that invitation. He rejected the opportunity to get on board with what God was doing. Why was that? Well, it follows that the key to accepting this invitation is knowing or having a belief that if you accept this invitation you will be better off for it. You need to know that you're going to be better off for it. Simple information doesn't convince us of uh, any point, does it? So what happened with Herod? Why didn't Herod accept this invitation? Well, let's think about our unfortunate tech investor, Ronald Wayne, again for a little moment. He didn't miss out on, this opportunity, on his opportunity to be a billionaire because he arbitrarily woke up one morning and decided, you know what, I'm going to pull out of this new company and I'm going to sell my stocks. It's too much of a hassle. That's it. He didn't do that. 
Why did Wayne bail on Apple so early? Well, he'd been burned before. In an, early in an earlier venture, Wayne's company had fizzled out and it left him paying back creditors for two years. So when Steve Jobs began taking out loans to fill their first order, Wayne, who was a partner and would be liable for the debts incurred, uh, who would also be responsible for any debts incurred, decided to pull out because he got skittish. He didn't want to get burned again. He didn't just make a whimsical decision. His past experiences had formed him to make the decision that he made, which cost him billions of dollars. Do you know that when it comes to being a tech mogul and a billionaire, there's a golden date to be born, around 1954 to 56. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, um, all these other people who I don't really even know, uh, all born in that two-year period. In his uh, book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell notes uh, this date and says that people born within these dates were young enough that they could get on the back of the tech revolution but weren't quite, but, and also go to university and get on, uh, learn about the new computers. But they weren't old enough that they had got an established job, a house, and a family, and so were willing to take risks. There were other factors involved other than a mere decision. Decisions and opportunities aren't made in a single moment. So what about King Herod? Well, if we descend into the details and particulars of his life, we might learn about his life and upbringing that perhaps significantly influenced his decision when faced with the Magi. So let's have a look. Herod was born in about 73 BC to a Jewish Edomite, who was, and he was appointed a, as a procurate of Palestine by Julius Caesar. Consequently, he was appointed to be a military prefect of Galilee, where he was ruthless, efficient, in his, and sought, took, got the approval of his Roman uh, overlords. However, when the Parthians invaded Galilee, there was a challenge to his privileged position. The Parthians appointed the Hasmonean family as rulers. However, Herod had the backing of Rome, who appointed him as their king. Again, with ruthless determination, after three years of fighting, Herod prevailed. He'd executed two Hasmonean leaders, hundreds of their supporters, and in the process secured the kingship for himself. He even married a Hasmonean, uh, a Hasmonean woman, to secure his place of privilege over the people. However, he still had some problems. For the next seven years, Cleopatra was ever-present behind the scenes, lurking, trying to find ways to recapture Israel for herself. It was only after her death that Herod was fully secure. And from that time forward, Herod worked his hardest to maintain a tight grip on the power he had. He funded large building projects around the empire to pay homage to Caesar. He even built two cities and renamed them after Caesar. To keep the Jewish people happy, he funded his greatest building project of all, rebuilding the temple. But still, they didn't like him. They didn't forget that he wasn't a pure Jew, and they resented him as an Edomite descendant. Nor did they forget his killing of the Hasmonean family, 
or ignore his loyalties to Rome. And so instead of standing secure in his role as king, he became even more paranoid the longer his reign continued. He assassinated his mother-in-law. He assassinated his brother-in-law. He assassinated his favorite wife because she was from the Hasmonean family. Then he executed two of his sons by her because his other son had convinced him of their plotting and planning. However, Herod turned on this son as well and executed him. In another assassination attempt that was made on his life, and it failed, he got the ten men involved, got together their entire families, and executed them. But none of this abated his suspicions and paranoia. And so he started to have a large number of prominent Jews executed, along with their families, along with their supporters, especially if he thought they were a political threat. He even had it written in his will that upon his death, all the Jewish nobility should be executed to ensure that there was genuine mourning at his death. Not paranoid in the least. What we see here is a man who had, over a long period of time, more than nearly four decades, fought his way to the top, worked hard for what he had and for what he achieved, he had earned the favor of Caesar through his own skills as a military leader, and he had stayed on top by eliminating anyone who was a threat to his power and his position in the world. Despite all of this, despite all he had done, despite rebuilding the temple, and all his ruling, and all that he had done for the Jewish people, they still did not respect him, they still did not accept him, and they still did not admire him as their king. And so what we see is that what made Herod make this decision wasn't of what he would do when confronted with the baby Jesus or the birth of Jesus, wasn't him merely weighing up the facts that were before him and making a decision based on those. But it was the history that had gone before him. He had struggled, fought, bribed, spied, executed and defended his power at all costs for his whole life. So, three wise men, informed, wealthy, and influential, come from a foreign country and ask to see the new king. What is Herod going to do? What does every fiber of his being tell him to do? Exactly what has served him well to this point. Exactly what he's always done. And that's exactly what he does. Eliminate a threat to his power and control. And compared to the treachery of his life to this point, murdering a couple of dozen infants is nothing. It sounds horrible to us, but it was absolutely nothing compared to what he had done, all in a day's work. See, is he going to let the servant king dethrone him? Is he going to let the one who proclaims humility self-sacrifice and love of enemies dethrone him? Is he going to let the one who challenges every way of life that he knows rule over him? Of course not. Of course he's not. But this is exactly the invitation that is issued to each and every one of us, indeed the whole world, by Jesus. Will you let me be king over you? Will you let me be king over your life? And we too 
as sinful men and women have the same history as Herod of claiming and reclaiming power for ourselves to be king of my life. I'm in control. I've got my life together on my terms. We're busy being someone big and powerful in our own eyes, and we crush, perhaps to put it a little bit more politically correct, we assertively push back on those who challenge who we are or what we want to be, including Jesus. We too act like we always have done. When we are invited to Jesus, we are invited to give up power and control of our lives. If you would choose to follow me, pick up your cross and come and die. Of our thoughts, be transformed by the renewing of, our, of your mind. Jesus calls us to give him control of our money. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, not treasure on earth where moth and rust can destroy. Jesus calls, up to, calls us to give up our power. Love your enemies. Forgive those who persecute you. Jesus calls us to give up control of our bodies. If your hand or your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Of our family, of our status, of our pride, the invitation of Jesus is to let him be king over the entirety of our lives. And so for us, I think, as Christians, the invitation really is twofold. Firstly, it's to be self-reflective. Self-reflective. What's your story? What drives you? What experiences make you who you are? What's your family motto? What really gets you mad and upset? It's a good one to reflect on. What do you keep doing that you regret? What does your spouse or children keep telling you that you're doing that you shouldn't? Are you too compliant in some way? Whose opinion do you care about the most? What makes you cry? What makes you feel small? The invitation that God issues to us is to be self-reflective. And that as we come to know him, let him challenge who we are so that we can truly be who we are, truly be who God has called us to be. The second invitation is the way to actualize this in our life, is to repent. The key to accepting this invitation from God is repentance. Look at that reading that Judy gave us of John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for people to meet God. He comes to prepare the way for people to see Jesus. What is his call? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn away from those things in your life so that you turn away from them and can look at God and behold him and see him and know him and accept him and be ready for him. Repent for Jesus is coming. And if you want to see him, you must humble yourself. Turn from that which takes you away from God and look and see. See the king. 
See the King of glory, who we sung about earlier. And of course, that is the promise of Jesus, isn't it? That when we do repent, when we are self-reflective and offer him lordship of those things in our lives that we know are not of his kingdom, he will take them. He'll get rid of them. He'll forgive us. He will take you into that future that is better than where you are now if you're willing to receive that invitation. Why? Because Jesus became powerless for you so that you could have the true power that gives fulfillment and purpose in this life. Jesus lost, lost everything on the cross so that you would become rich. Not in earthly terms, but in heavenly terms. Jesus took your sin so that you have nothing to be ashamed of before God. Jesus promised that his perfect life could be yours. Jesus died the death that you and all of us deserve so that we can have life, life to the fullest here and life for eternity. And Jesus rose from the grave to give us the promise of this new life and hope, secure once and for all. And here's the thing. It's precisely that Jesus is risen that gives us hope for the Herods of this world. So you might have been left at the end of that story of Herod going, well, what's the point? <laughs> if people are just so immersed in their story and who they are, what hope is there for anyone? What hope is there for the worst of the worst? Why should we pray for those people? Why should we share the gospel with them if they're just going to act out of who they are? We can see change in people like Herod. We can see change in someone who is steeped in the muck of life, of ruthless sin and depravity. I'm sure you know the story in the Bible of a man named Saul. He sees the church taking off. And he hates Jesus. He hates Christians. And he makes it his business to destroy them. And he does. He throws them in prison. He kills them. But on the road to Damascus, he meets the risen Lord Jesus Christ and is kicked off his donkey to the ground. After which, he spends the rest of his life traveling the Roman Empire, proclaiming that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, not Herod, not Caesar, not ourselves, but Jesus. And that is the hope, that Jesus is alive, and that through the preaching of the gospel, through the sharing of the good news of Jesus, through the sharing of the good news that death is defeated, that sin is overcome, and that there is a hope for the future, people encounter through the Holy Spirit the risen Lord Jesus Christ and have the invitation and the opportunity to have their lives lifted up, turned around, changed and transformed for the glory of God. If you do not know, if you've never received that invitation today, as with every day, the risen Lord Jesus invites you to come and to trust Him. If you do know Jesus, if you're already on that journey, the invitation today is to be reflective. What is it in your life that makes you who you are? What drives you? What about those questions I asked before? What makes you feel small? Because in Jesus, we should feel big. We should feel as his children, loved unconditionally. Opportunity is for us to be reflective, 
to receive that invitation to grow in grace and to be transformed by the power of His Holy Spirit. Let us accept that invitation so that we can again extend that invitation to others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do uh, know every detail of our lives. You know where we've come from. You know the significant relationships in our lives, the significant events that make us who we are. And yet you love us. You love us with all the baggage that we, we bring. But you don't want us to settle for this life that we've got. You call us to greater things to newness of life. You offer an invitation to something better, to something new, to something hopeful and purposeful. And so, Jesus, as we hear this invitation this morning, would we not be like Herod? Would we not let the things of our past dictate how we act in the future? But would you empower us by your Spirit to accept each invitation that you give us, whether it be a big, massive, life-changing invitation to come and follow you for the first time, Will it be a small one to offer to you those things that we know are not of you and to be transformed? So God, be with us. Speak to us and bless us. In your name we pray. Amen.